you live in a neighborhood and if your neighborhood has any kind of organized neighborhood association or homeowners association, but if you've been a part of a neighborhood that does, they can be a real headache uh, and they can be helpful in some ways also, but some of the headaches that come with choosing to move into a neighborhood with an HOA, well, one is you're obligating yourself to pay month pay dues of some kind and some some dollar amount that you're you're paying into that association you you're also you have to submit to the the covenants conditions and and regulations of that neighborhood CCNRs and so that 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 means that you're not completely free to do whatever you want with your property and your house particularly the exterior and what faces the street and and so you can't you, you have to get approval to paint your house hot pink like you want to or something like that or to have a fence a certain height all those kinds of things you have to you have to get those things run those things by the association uh, you, you, you also may get cited for violations, and so if your grass is too high or if you've got too many vehicles parked in the driveway, those kinds of things. You have to put up with neighborhood politics, and maybe you attend neighborhood meetings, and so, so there's, there's headaches that come with that. But there are also some advantages that come with an HOA. There are amenities that you probably can enjoy and have access to, sometimes swimming pools or tennis courts or a walking path, that kind of thing. There may be safety and security measures that are in place because you're part of that neighborhood. It may just be some kind of neighborhood watch or it could be even a gate and a security guard, that kind of thing. Uh, it also, the, you, the neighborhood generally, because of those restrictions, it looks nice and people maintain their, uh, their houses and so home values may reflect that. Well, we're not preaching about neighborhoods, but I, I say that um, uh, because... You, you, in a, in a, when, if you live in a neighborhood with an HOA, you probably have decided that the pros at least slightly edge out the cons of living in a neighborhood like that. Um, some Christians can treat the church like uh, a homeowners association. And this is kind of the, the grid through which they view it. We, we pay our dues, we give, we, we have to submit to the CCNRs, we have a church governing and doctrinal statement and bylaws, those kinds of things. We, we sort of feel judged by others for how we live, and we, we have to put up with church politics, but we do it anyways because there are, there are certain amenities that we enjoy, and we, so we deem that it's the pros slightly edge out the cons. And so there's amenities that we have for our families and for ourselves. And, and we think it's a safe place for our kids. And, we, and there are some good things that we get out of it for our own personal development. And so that, that kind of thing. But listen, that is a faulty, unbiblical view of the church. Uh, the church is not an HOA. Um, but, but if we're honest, the lens through which we often view the church is, is us. <laughs> It's us. It's our lives and our choices and our needs and our desires and our commitments and our preferences and our schedules. And so we, we choose to go or not to go. We choose to join or not to join. We, we have things we're looking for. We have things we like. We have things we don't like. We, we can leave whenever we want. We can, we can give as much or as little time and energy as we want to it, depending on our schedules and lifestyle at that time of of our life and so and there's certainly some there are certainly real uh very real human 
there's a real human side to the church. And so some of those things are, of course, they're, they're true and that's part of the story. But as we talked about last week, and as we're going to see again this week, that's not the greater primary fundamental reality when it comes to thinking about the church biblically. The church doesn't begin with us. It's not for us. It's not dependent on us. It's not about us. The church from beginning to end is is about Christ. And, and, And so He's at the center. We exist, as Hebrews 10 is the passage we read ago, we exist because Jesus has by His blood open this, open the way to God for us. And He's brought us near and, and, and He remains as the great priest over us. And so our participation in the church doesn't begin when we decide to walk through a door. No, it begins with Christ's work in us. So that's, that's fundamental. Yes, yes, that's, I realize Hebrews 10, that's ultimately talking about that universal body of Christ that we're brought in together, but, but, but you must see that Baraka Bible Church or any local church is simply a local expression of that body of Christ. And so because of this work that Christ has done, we are told in verse 22 again, to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. We said last week we're to be a church at rest, at rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We're not, we're not to go back, and this is part of the point of Hebrews, to go back to that performance-driven religion and moralism that, that, that people were being tempted to be drawn back into. And so there's this constant undercurrent pulling us back to, to that. But, but, but the writer says, no, draw near with a heart of, of full assurance and faith. And then he goes on. In verse 23, let us together hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And we're getting to this is, this is the bigger answer to, to why we're part of a church. Why, the, the reason why Christ has formed us into community and even into local churches like this is so that we together can cling to the promises of God. And so this is why we need these deep, enduring, gospel-rooted relationships in the local church. And so he goes on in verse 24 again, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So as you think about church involvement, as you think about our church covenant, which is what we're, we're doing, if you're a guest with us today, we're, we, we normally... Uh, on Sunday mornings in our gatherings, we're just walking through books of the Bible, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter. We're doing something a little different uh, last Sunday and this Sunday. And, and, and we're just using our church covenant as sort of a guide to re- remind ourselves of what it means to be part of a local church. And, and what an involvement in the local church is to, is to be characterized by. And so, as we think about church involvement, as we think about our church covenant, don't think of the church again like an HOA. This isn't a pros slightly outweighing the cons social arrangement. Uh, this isn't, there's always another neighborhood. We can just sell our house and move and go to another neighborhood, find another HOA that we like better. It's not that kind of a re- relationship. We're called to community. And as we said last week, community, biblically, it means commitment. Commitment, And the reason God's brought us into this covenant community is so that we can draw near to Christ together. 
This is, this is why we exist. And so we covered the introduction and the first three paragraphs of our covenant last week. I, I, there's copies that are provided in every other seat anyway. And so hopefully near you, you can fight over the, the copies of the church covenant if you just want to see it in its entirety. And um, so we're going to pick right up in paragraph number four. Let me read it and then we will, uh, we, we will explain together. So paragraph four says, We will walk together in humility and unity encouraging, exhorting, admonishing, and serving one another in the spirit of brotherly love. We will, we will remember one another in our prayers. We will aid each other in sickness and distress. And so if I could sum it up, it would be this way. We will humbly cultivate meaningful relationships marked by unity and love. And so you see there, at the, right at the beginning, we will, we will walk together in humility. We have a small group that meets at our house. It's the young adults of this church, which is a really growing population in this church. And so we have, we have, uh, we usually have about 20 young adults, college kind of age folks at our house on Wednesday nights for our small group. But we have probably 35 or so that are part of our church. Some work and have classes on Wednesday nights. But we're walking right now through um, a, a book together and, and the, the title of the book is Cultivating Meaningful Relationships. It's by Ed Welch, the guy that wrote Side by Side, who did the conference here. But he begins, he kind of has eight directives to how do we cultivate meaningful, deeper relationships within the church. And the first first place he goes is his humility. Humility. It's it's foundational. Key to us having gospel-rooted community where we hold fast and cling to the promises of God together, it's the humility to say, I am needy. I am weak. I don't have what it takes on my own. That's, that's, that's necessary. We gotta see the necessity of the body. God has designed us to be interdependent. Not independent and self-sufficient, but interdependent. And so pride is always an obstacle to close biblical community. Because when pride exists, we end up caring more about ourselves than we do about others. We care more about our ideas or our opinions than we, our convictions on kind of secondary matters than we do about, about people, real souls that are in front of us. It, pride makes us begin to worry a lot about our appearances and how we look in front of people and so it keeps us from being truly honest with one another. Pride keeps people at a distance because we don't want people to see the real us. And so you can see how pride is going to undermine community, but humility, it fosters and and gives fertile soil for community to grow. And so spirit-produced humility, it paves the way for close biblical community. And what is it that gives us it's that, 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 that opportunity to be humble before one another? It's, it is the Gospel. The Gospel, it gives us freedom to be humble, to be honest. We don't have to pretend that we're better than we really are. We don't have to pretend. In fact, we can admit that we're worse than anybody even realizes. And yet the blood of Jesus Christ still covers us. And so it frees us to be humble, to be honest. And so a a church full of humble sinners who just never get over the grace of God, that is a wonderful place to be. And I pray that that will more and more characterize us. That's the kind of fellowship that enables to cling to hope in Christ together. And so then, then we'll say, then humility allows us, as the second part of this, is to walk together in unity. Humble, we we can be 
we can we can be together. We're not walking in uniformity, but in unity. It's not it's not that we all look and think and act and dress and vote and talk the exact same ways. We're just kind of this uniform church. No, we're wonderfully diverse. We disagree at times. We we do things differently. We think differently, but we're humble and we're focused on what we have in common, which is Christ. And so the the common confession that we have of Christ is what makes us one. And we walk in that unity. And so it's not it's not just about walking in humility and unity with people that are just sort of little clones of us that they 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 look just like we have a little tight circle of friends and we all look alike, think alike, dress alike, talk alike. No, it's it's about cultivating meaningful relationships throughout the body with people you have nothing in common with except Christ. That's the kind of oneness that we're called to have. And so I just say if certain people or if people in general maybe <laughs> seem particularly difficult uh, for you or to you, it may be because you're not drinking deeply enough of the gospel. Because you think, and we've been singing this, but just think about what we've been singing this morning and this amazing grace. And, and can, can it be that I should gain me, the worst of sinners, but just thinking about thinking about the gospel, it, it should should soften our hearts, and so that we can be humble and and pursue unity together. Do you, do you think that you were not difficult when Christ saved you? Do you think that you were lovable and nice to be around, and it was easy? Do you think that there were all these mutual interests and and and, and natural similarities that you had uh, with between you and God? common interests? Do you think that you met Him halfway in your relationship? Uh Uh-uh. No, God pursued you when you hated Him. He he loved you when you rejected Him. He he had nothing in common with you. You are are, are a wretched sinner. He's perfectly holy and yet you, you didn't move towards Him and meet Him halfway. No, He came to us. So this is the glorious news of the gospel, and and again, the the deeper we drink and draw from that that reservoir, the more inclined we'll be to to pursue relationships and walk in humility and walk in unity with one another. And so then, so so we as we as we state this um, in in our church covenant, we're trying to gather in all of those we call those one another passages of the of the New Testament. And so there's all these commands in, in the New Testament exhortations that, you know, we're to love one another, serve one another, welcome one another, on and on and on. So what we're saying is all of those commands, if, if, if all those one another exhortations and commands are like flowers or plants in, in, the, in, in the field of the church, then the soil in which those grow, are, it, it's humility and unity. That's what I'm saying. So we grow from that. Otherwise, if you just try to try to do those one another's uh, and take those commands and say, "Yeah, I'm going to do that today. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this." It's like it's like having a cut arrangement of flowers, which looks really pretty for a few days, and then it dies and it fades away. And so we can have these moments of expressions of love, but if they're not growing from the soil, from the gospel-rich soil of humility and unity, then it's just they're just going to fade. They're just going to be a little. A little momentary uh, expression. And so humility and unity 
as Christ grows these graces in us, then, then these beautiful flowers of the different expressions of love for one another, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to grow and they're going to be healthy and strong and vibrant in, 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 our, in our church. And so we will welcome one another and honor one another and bear with one another and be kind to one another and forgive one another and submit to one another and teach and admonish one another and encourage and build up one another, confess our sins to one another, pray for one another, show hospitality to one another, on and on and on. These things will, these things will grow healthy and strong and be common in us if we walk in humility and love. We will love one another. The most visible display of the gospel in the church is how we relate to one another. <clears throat> and I'm grateful for the way the gospel is displayed here at this local church in Baraka Bible Church. It's not displayed perfectly, but it is displayed increasingly and in many different ways. And I'm, I'm grateful for this church body. It does not feel like an HOA to me. And I've been part of an HOA in our own little neighborhood. And, and, and I don't think it feels that way to most of you either. I want us to listen to some testimonies now of some folks in this church uh, just sharing how the Lord has used this church body and ministry to one another. So uh, just listen and, and then we'll continue on. night where I had to do one of the most difficult things that I've ever done as a mom and leave Abby with her new respite family. I left that home in an unknown place in a different state, following directions, trying to go back to a hotel that I did not know where it was. And I was crying my eyes out. And I tried to call my husband, who was um, unable to talk with me at the time as he was taking care of our other children. And then a sweet friend in our church called me, and she sat on the phone with me while I sat at a gas station and cried and she cried with me and we cried together so I'm thankful for those who weep with us when we weep most of you know that David and I have been separated for the last eight and a half years and in this eight and a half years I have been the recipient of God's grace through my Baraka family in many ways um, we have received financial support we've received encouragement we've received um, just prayer for the most part, um, and I'm very thankful for all that my Baraka family has done in order to uh, get us through this difficult time. In 2013, my sister and I arrived in America with our new family. We were scared. We don't know anything about English. We don't know anything about God, just Jesus. Um, but we had a weird experience. A total strangers meet us at the airport with smiles and signs, taking interest in us, becoming our friends. We saw the love of God before we knew who He was. Her oldest daughter, Suzanne, is in dire need of a liver transplant. We could lose her at any time. Though Suzanne's not a member of our church, you've been a great encouragement to her. Her husband, Troy, and our entire family. Your prayers and love for all of us gives us strength and comfort that we need each day. Thank you. We love you all. So how the Lord has used Braca for me, um, 
really it's just like the community I saw that was already there like people were so welcoming when I first came like my first time visiting like so many people were coming up to me saying hi and even my little sister had friends that she knew from school like I could just already feel that like community like forming like from the first day I know it sounds crazy but people like are genuinely nice like and kind and they care about how your week went even though they don't even know your first name yet you know what I mean so it's just like it's been really great I, I've enjoyed it so far and like getting to know people my own age like didn't think that would happen either but there's this whole community I had no idea about of just students that are like living for Christ so I've just enjoyed it so far we all have trouble in life the Bible says we all have trouble when trouble comes along some people see the trouble the glass half full and some people see the glass half empty the Puritans would say that those people that see the glass half empty had a melancholy spirit. I tend to lean towards a melancholy spirit, but I'm blessed to be part of a church family filled with brothers and sisters in Christ who always are willing to point me back to truth. One dear sister is very faithful each week to remind me to be thankful and to choose joy. Joy and thankfulness draws my eyes back up to Jesus the lover of my soul, and the lifter of my head. So the most palpable expression of one othering that I've experienced at Baraka is when my mom was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2011. Baraka was so faithful to walk through that trial with our family by um, praying for us, providing meals for us, and just being there to, to weep with us. Um, that consistent outpouring of love um, was continued through a, a, a bittersweet time of, of grieving after mom passed away. Um, I love this church body and I'm, I'm so grateful for them and I consider them an extension of my own family. Um, we are closely knit to one another by something much stronger than any biological ties, Christ's redeeming blood. My family and I uh, moved 2,500 miles four years ago as my career in California was winding down. And we were looking to, uh, to relocate to the southeast. Um, we were searching for a church uh, that was similar doctrinally uh, from where we had, uh, had served. Uh, Baraka took us in, houses free for two weeks while we found a place to live, uh, made sure we were acclimating. Um, uh, took us out for meals and uh, helped my wife Karen and I and our children uh, get involved here in ministry. Uh, in Matthew 25:35, it says, For I was hungry, uh, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Uh, we were then and continue to be uh, very grateful for all that uh, the church has done for us here. And, um, and as it's done for us, uh, we're called likewise to turn uh, around and bless those among us also in need. I first came to Baraka about two years ago, and I was new and really shy, still am, but God really used the people in the church, He used His people to show me His love, and I really battled with um, assurance of salvation and he used teachers at Baraka and just loving people coming to me and walking alongside me. 
Probably one of the things that comes to mind most clearly uh, in one of the ways the Lord has used Baraka to minister to me through the years is just the counsel uh, that we've received from from those uh, who attend here, who minister here, uh, who serve in leadership here. Um, whether those are informal times where you're just looking for advice or those are more formal times like our premarital counseling or the counseling we received before going to the mission field and, and when we came back. Uh, the Lord has just richly blessed me through the wisdom that I've received and, and the many counselors that the Lord has used. So a few years back, Patrick and I were going through depression, and we really didn't want to be at Baraka, to be honest. We wanted to hit the restart button on life, foolishly thinking that was somehow going to bring us joy. Um, but in the midst of that, God kept us coming to Baraka. And one Sunday, I just chose to look around the auditorium from one family to the next. As I considered all of you, I couldn't find a single family that was free from suffering. Instead, I was very aware of much suffering and pain, but I also saw that you chose to be here. And in that instant, God really blessed me with joy inexpressible and full of glory. God blesses us when we choose to gather together in the good seasons and the bad. So now I choose to look at all of your faces very often <laughs> while we sing during communion. And I'm thankful that God didn't let us run away from our struggles because he knit us together with you. I sent out an email just, I think it was Sunday night or something, it was early, I didn't give people much time, just to a kind of a broad thinking, if I could just get two or three people to respond, and I just kind of threw that question as, are there ways the Lord has used the local church that you'd be willing to give a little short video testimony, and I, I have more people respond than I could possibly squeeze into a video, or we'd have been here all morning, uh, but I, I'm thankful for the ministry that, that is, is evident to, uh, to one another. All right, let's let's keep moving. The the next statement in our in our uh, church covenant says this: We will cultivate grace, truth, and forbearance in our speech. Promote unity and be peacemakers with those in the body. Be slow to take offense. Be quick to confess sins and ask forgiveness. And always be ready for reconciliation, remembering our Savior's instructions to secure it without delay. And so the summary of that is it's just because we cling. Because we need to cling to hope in Christ together, we must be willing to diligently pursue peacemaking in the church. And so in a church, conflict is a given. The church is not a safe space that's free from disagreements and conflict in any form. We shouldn't be surprised by that or be frightened by that. That's, this is, is normal. The church is made up of sinners, and wherever there are sinners, there will be conflict. And, and so the question is, how will we respond when conflict uh, arises in the church? And so will we revel in that conflict and kind of be those, those peace breakers, as Ken Sandy talks about, where we, we, we are argumentative, we're forcing our own way, we're, we're running over people, dividing people, letting bitterness fester, uh, moving away from people and just kind of blocking them out, or will we? So, so maybe some are inclined to that, and kind of that that 
you can you know that tendency in your heart to argue and to but so but others we tend to avoid try to avoid all conflict and run away from it and so we want to fake peace instead of make peace and so because of fear of man or his desire to keep our lives comfortable we 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 want to stay steer clear of that and so we'll we just we just try to run from the conflict instead of trusting the, in in Christ and and His ability to help us resolve uh, conflict through the gospel. And so, in Ephesians chapter four, you can turn there with me if you if you if you're able to. Ephesians chapter four, uh, we 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 see some words, and we could go to just about any New Testament letter and find a very similar passage, similar encouragements because. Again, this is just something, this is not new for the modern church to deal with conflict. This was true from the very beginning. And, and so in, these, in each of these letters, the, the gospel is explained and expounded, and then it's applied, and one of the, 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 the most frequent applications is how we relate to one another. And, and this is a, a regular one, that we're, we're called to make peace with one another. So Ephesians 4, uh, 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 verse 1 I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, what is the calling to which we've been called? Well, if you've, if you've studied through Ephesians before, this is just some of what makes up this calling. We've been called from death to life, from enmity to peace. We were strangers, now we're sons. We were in darkness, now we're in light. And so, if we want to sum up what this calling to which we've been called is, we, you could just say it's the gospel. In fact, in, in, in parallels, in Philippians 1.27, which is, is a parallel of this passage in Ephesians, this is how he says, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so, in light of this glorious gospel, how should we then live and relate to one another? And then he says, with all humility, there's our word again, Humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he says in verse 4, there is already objectively, it's, it's just true because of Christ, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so if you truly know and you understand and you savor and you delight in God's death-defeating, sin-slaying, enmity-ending gospel, then you will be, what, as Paul says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Eager to do that. Not just... If it happens, if there's no other option, if I can't get away, no, eager to. It's this pulsating ambition in the life of the believer who's, who's been transformed by the gospel. We must be so deeply affected by Christ and His redeeming love for His church that we're eager to make peace with one another when conflicts come. And so as we, as we talk about peacemaking, Biblical peacemaking, it's different from just kind of the secular idea of conflict resolution. I know if you are any kind of large corporation or even small businesses, you probably have to take courses in conflict resolution. And understandably, in the, some good principles and a lot of the principles there 
are, I mean, are really biblical principles. But what we're talking about, the kind of peace that we pursue and the process involved in pursuing this peace, it is, it is only possible through Christ. And so, so um, I, I, we found great help as a church, the book The Peacemaker. And many of you have read this, and if you've not read it before, I, I highly recommend it. Uh, it's written by Ken Sandy, and I know the students went through this uh, a couple years ago. But those, there are these four G's that he says, four G's of peacemaking, just to make it a memorable and to kind of touch point. But all of those G's of peacemaking are rooted in the gospel. So the first one is this, is to, is to, is to glorify God. And so the, the glory of God is the whole goal of the gospel. This is what it's all moving towards. But God's glory is to be our chief motivation when it comes to dealing with conflict in the church. It's not to be heard. It's not to win our argument. It's not to defeat your opponent. It's not to defend yourself. No, the, the driving ambition in us needs to be God's glory. His honor. And so we, and we glorify God in the process of peacemaking by trusting Him and depending upon Him and, and doing things His way and, 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 and obeying Him. And, and so the focus is on Him. It's not on ourselves. It's not even about the other person. It's ultimately on the glory of God. So that's where it begins. And that, that goal of the gospel. Second, it's, it's get the log out of your eye. And this is the need for the gospel. What we're saying here is it's a humility to acknowledge my sin, my contribution to the conflict. I don't come to this as a completely innocent party. No, I'm a desperate sinner. I need grace, just like you do. And so, so we don't just blame others for the conflict. We, we don't resist correction when people come to us. No, we take responsibility for our part in the conflicts. We confess this, our sins when we've when, when, uh, to those that we've wronged. We ask God's help to change our attitudes and change our habits that, that have led to this conflict. We, we seek to repair any harm that's caused by this conflict. Third, we, we're to gently restore. And that's the transforming effect of the Gospel. That as we comprehend the Gospel and as our hearts are softened by the work of Christ, that, that radically transforms how we view and treat other people, even those that we're in conflict with. And so Christ frees us from having to just ignore the conflict, but we, so we can actually work towards res- restoration and, 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 and restoring that relationship. But, it, but it's not in a self-assertive, proud, bullying way. It's, it's gently. We, we, we're not enemies, um, because of Christ. And so I don't want to treat you, I'm not to treat you as an enemy, but, but, but to help, rest, we can restore one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and, and so that's the third. And then fourth, go and be reconciled. That's the provision of the Gospel. The, the Gospel is about peace. It's about reconciliation. And so don't settle, brothers and sisters, don't settle for this debris trail in your life that's just behind you of broken relationships that are in just total disrepair and you just try to move on and you just think you're going to leave that. No, don't do that. Work towards reconciliation. This is, this is something God is, enables because of the work that Christ has done, making us one. Forgive others as God has forgiven you. Seek fair and just mutually beneficial solutions to differences that you have with brothers and sisters. So this is, again, if, if we're going to cling to Christ together in the hope of the gospel, we've got to make peace with one another. This is what we're trying to say in this statement. Sixth, 
We will strive for the advancement of the Lord's church in knowledge, holiness, and comfort to promote its prosperity and spirituality, to sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines, and to give its sacred preeminence over all other institutions of human origin. And so because we must hold fast to the confession of our hope together, we will give unwavering devotion to the church. And so a passage that comes to mind is, is, is in Acts chapter 2. This is right after the church is born. So on the Pentecost, Peter preaches and you have thousands of souls added and the, and the church begins gathering together in this infant form. And, and the summary statement in Acts chapter 2 verse 42 is that they, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And so those first believers in that earliest form of the church, they essentially what he's saying is they devoted themselves to the Lord and His, and His people. And so they, they devoted themselves. It doesn't mean that every waking moment of every day was devoted to going to church or something like that as we think of it. It's not that they didn't have other jobs or they didn't have other responsibilities, didn't have to wash the clothes or you know, just kind of do normal life stuff, prepare meals. No, but what it's, the, the word devoted, the idea is, they, is to stand ready. There's a, there's a good, helpful biblical illustration of this in, in Mark chapter 3, verse 9. You don't need to turn there, but this is, this is an account where the crowds are, are, are going out to see Jesus, and there's just these enormous crowds that have come to Jesus on the, on the, on the seashore, and so they're pressing in, and there's just no way for him to, to move or, or to, to speak to these whole crowds because they're, they're just so tight. And so, so uh, in Mark 3, 9, it says, He told the disciples to have a boat ready for him, and it's the same word there, ready for him. It's to be devoted to him, having a devote, boat devoted to him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. <laughs> so this crowd is it's like stampeding Jesus because they want to get near him. And so this boat is devoted to him. So if Jesus walks down the shore, the boat moves right with him, if, you know, right behind him. If he goes this way, the boat just goes right there. So at any time, he can you know, make his exit and get on the boat and you know, back away a few feet and then continue to speak to the crowds. It's not like he's trying to leave or something like that. But, but if, if Jesus moved, the boat moved. And, and that's, the, that's the picture of, of what it means to, to be devoted to the church. It's... it's, it's it's not to measure up to some quantitative standard that you know the elders have set or something like that. That's not that's not the point. The point is when the body moves, you move. So you 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 stand ready. You're you're devoted. This is your church family. It's not what's your attendance record or giving statement. What does that look like? Or how many ministry roles and titles do you have? But is your mark is is your life marked by giving priority to the church? In real, tangible ways. So, so that the church is not simply just kind of another piece, a piece of the pie that is your life. And for some of you, that feels like a bigger piece. And for others, that's a real skinny piece that, you know, people say they want when they really want a big piece. But, um, uh, but that's not it. The church isn't just one of those things that you just kind of work into your busy schedule. It's, and you give a little bit of time, a little bit of energy to it, and you, because, and because you have give so much time and energy to other things. No, our lives are, are defined by our relationship to Christ in His church. And, and this gives definition and shape to our lives. This is what's behind the state, this statement in the covenant that you may read and think, oh, what does that mean? That we will give it sacred preeminence over all institutions of human origin. 
what's an institution of human origin? I mean, just any kind of group that's not something that's been ordained by God, you know, the family or the church or something like that. It could be, you know, some hobby that you have or civic club or sports leagues or school or any, any number of things. And so we, we want to give the church priority. Um, so parents, this is an area we've got to... We have to shepherd our children well here because we know the pressure. I was just, we were talking about this week. I mean, Wednesday nights, they were no go for school activities or sports or extracurricular activities, even when I was a kid, which was just a couple years ago. Um, But I mean, nothing happened on Wednesday nights because it was a church night. And certainly Sundays were totally off. And, but even Wednesday nights, and now, I mean, every night of the week, every day is an option. And so we, you feel this pressure and there's all these opportunities and we have, you know, we have the means, many people have the means to do lots of different things. We feel this pressure, maybe we create pressure for ourselves to try to do everything and be involved in everything for our kids, not just a little bit, but to the max. And, and so we have to be careful. And we have to be careful when those things to begin to control our lives. We're not, they're not... They're not opportunities that we're utilizing, but they are actually controlling us and dictating our lives for us. And so, so there, it's when we find it nearly impossible to say no to something. Or when we, we find ourselves regularly saying no to the church or to the Lord's Day gathering uh, in order to do it. And so my point, listen, my point's not about guilt. It's not to layer some man-made rule or or legalistic expectation on, on us. That's not it at all. That's not a good motivator. My, my point, and this is why we start in Hebrews 10 again, there, there ought to be this desperation in, in us that I've got to, not, for the, not because my uh, salvation is, is insecure. We made that really clear last week. But, but there's this constant pull to be drawn away from the gospel and, and together we must hold fast to the promises of God in Christ. And so uh, this is why we're here. It's not because it's a cultural expectation. It's not because I want to set a good example for my kids. I mean, that's not ultimately it. It's no, it's that I, I need to, we need to cling to Christ together. And so we've we got to make the church a priority. And so, I, but, I, but I just I know the tendency. It's so busy families, one of the first things that gets trimmed out is church involvement. And so we just need to be careful. I encourage you just to prayerfully think, think through this. And maybe get counsel from other brothers and sisters in the church that have already been down this road and just can help you, can pray with you and help you think through this. It's not, again, to set up some man-made standard. It's just to see the beauty and the good design that God has in the church being a priority in our lives. Um, seventh. We will give cheerfully and faithfully for the support of, of our church uh, the expenses of its ministry and the spread of the gospel through all the nations. And so because we must cling together to Christ in the hope that we have in Him, we will joyfully and generously give for the advance of the gospel. We turn to 2 Corinthians 8, and we're not, we don't have time to walk through this passage in great detail, but 2 Corinthians 8, we see a great example of this. Uh, from its birth on the day of Pentecost, which we saw in Acts chapter 2 and referenced that, the, the Jerusalem church had to cope with extreme poverty in, in the, in, among its members and in the households of people in that church. And it's for a variety of reasons. One was just the, kind of the, 
uh, economic climate of the day in that region was was poor and and so they were heavily taxed by the Romans and so there's just this stifling poverty among people. Also, you had this Jerusalem church that was primarily made up of pilgrims and so you had these these pilgrims from all over that that part of the world that had flooded to Jerusalem for Pentecost and they 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 responded to the gospel and believed in Jesus and so. They didn't have churches to go back to, so they just stayed put in Jerusalem for weeks, months, maybe years. And so you have this swelling population of Christians, and and again, they don't have jobs there, and they don't have houses there. And so so they're dependent upon brothers and sisters, these new brothers and sisters in Christ, and this baby church. And so that made things difficult. Plus there was persecution that was increasing uh, against the church. And so you had all this thing. And so the Jerusalem church, they tried to meet the needs of its poor members in Acts 4.32. For instance, you read, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. And they, and they had everything in common. They just held loosely to things and shared and were generous with one another. And they did whatever they could do to take care of of brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. And so because of that selflessness and that generosity, there's a statement in, in verse 34 of chapter 4 that there was not a needy person among them. I mean, what a, what a great picture. I mean, they, they, their needs were supplied. That doesn't mean they were wealthy and just, it's not health and prosperity gospel. It's just, it, their needs were met. And, and so, but eventually the needs grew greater and greater and the persecution was escalating and they became overwhelmed by the needs and undersupplied with the resources to meet the needs. And so Paul recognized this and he determined to, to call on other churches as, as you have other churches now that, have, that as the gospel's gone out, you have other churches. And so he's calling on those churches to, to support and help the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And part of that is he wants to see these bonds strengthened between those Gentile congregations, outlined Gentile congregations and the Jerusalem church, which was made up mostly of Jewish believers and so in second corinthians 8 he's 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 making this appeal and he's talking about the motives for giving and toward uh, this relief in jerusalem and he the first thing he does is he draws attention to this exemplary group of churches and and there were there were this macedonian region so like the church of philippi thessalonica and berea and and he says in verse 4 of second corinthians 8 they gave begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. So they're, they're begging, they're pleading, and, and, they're, and with much urging, insistent, they're relentless in this, and, and, and for the favor of participation, the idea is for the grace or the blessing of helping meet the needs of these believers, believers they'd never even met before and, and would not meet this side of glory. So it wasn't dutiful, obligatory giving. It was. It came out of this generosity of their transformed hearts. And so let me just read, starting verse one. And I, we're not going to be able to explain in, yeah, this whole passage, but verse one. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. What a, what a statement. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. 
Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So there are several things that characterize this giving of these churches, but the, the thing I want you to know most of all is that it's provoked by God's grace. It's, it's grace-oriented, gospel-rooted giving. Verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. What, what motivated the Macedonians to be so generous? It wasn't innate human kindness. It wasn't uh, some inspirational memes that they, they showed up on their Instagram feed or something like that. It wasn't the tax breaks. It was the grace of God that was alive and at work in their hearts. And, and, and that, was, that was what prompted them. And so when God's grace is magnified in our minds, in our hearts, it's not a battle to give sacrificially to the Lord's work. Yeah, what else will we do? So, eighth, last, last statement. We will seek to live carefully and walk circumspectly in the world, affirming what is good and deserving of honor, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, maintaining a good testimony before the Lord, to be just and righteous in our thoughts and actions, to exercise faithfulness in our relationships and commitments, to protect the innocent and those who are persecuted for Christ's sake, and to abstain from evil and all appearance of evil. Now, I know that's a mouthful. And so this is not a thorough summary statement, but I'll just say it this way. We will live carefully in the world without being conformed to the world. Romans 12:2 passage we know well. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Um, there's a paraphrase Phillips uh, J.B. Phillips paraphrase of this verse he said don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold but let God remold your lives from within it's a helpful uh, interpretation of that and so we know we 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 know that there are um, there are Christian attempts that kind of swing to the other end of the spectrum so so we're, we're trying to avoid worldliness and so some, you know, just get sucked in and we become so much like the world. And then there are these other attempts to swing the pendulum so far and, and we try to withdraw from the world. Or we try to impose all these, these man-made rules and expectations to protect ourselves from becoming like the world. And, that, and that's, not, that's not effective. That's not good. That's not what God intends for us. So having this, this kind of list of what's considered worldly behavior, all these added rules that we create on you know, drinking and smoking and dancing and all these types of, of, of kind of um, legalistic, ascetic uh, restrictions. That's not it. I mean, Paul wrote concerning these kind of man-made rules that were showing up even in his own day. He says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom, have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But listen, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It's just, it, we, we feel good. Like, ah oh man, I'm really abstaining from that, but that's all you do. It's good feelings. It doesn't do anything. The rules approach to worldliness it just doesn't work. There's no value in it. It's got to be rooted in and it's got to grow out of the gospel of Christ. 
And so you, the whole context of this, what he says there in Colossians 2.23, the whole context is in the context of the gospel that God has made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He's saying this is it's from there that, that we, we, we abstain and we, we don't allow ourselves to conform. Worldliness at its core is a matter of the heart. It, it, and so as our hearts are captured by the love of Christ and transformed by the gospel of Christ, we will be drawn to Him and to love the things that He loves. Okay, well... The conclusion of our covenant there is, is simply this statement. This we covenant for the eternal glory of God, the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I only, I, I just give a plug. Two Sundays from now, that Trinitarian language is what we're going to just revel in for one Sunday before the missions conference. And so I'm excited about that. Well, how do we respond uh, to this little short two-part series? It's kind of out of the norm for us. Uh, just a couple things. One, the the introduction to our church covenant says that, that 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 we have received the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. If you have not received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, um, I I urge you to trust in Him today. Um, that's premier. We are born separated from God because of our sin. And yet God, in His great love for us, for the world, He sent His own Son, Jesus, to pay the penalty for our sin by dying on the cross. He died in our place as our substitute so that we wouldn't have to endure the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins. Jesus did that, and He rose from the dead on the third day, just as He promised, defeating death, defeating sin, and, and then he, and he, and the invitation then stands to trust in Him, to believe in Christ and what He has done for you. And in John 3.36 says, everyone who believes in Him has eternal life. And so I urge you, if you've not trusted in Jesus, you may have attended church, you may, it's not about moral reformation, it's not about uh, going to church more, it's not about cleaning up your life, it's about just an acknowledgement that I am a, I am a, desperate sinner I am hopeless without Christ I need I need someone outside to rescue me and Jesus has provided the rescue through his death and resurrection and I want to lay hold of him and so if you've not done that I encourage you urge you to do that today Um, if you've got questions come talk to me or someone sitting around you second if you know Christ but you're not connected to a church to this church or to any church but I would encourage you to do that I mean, there are different reasons people have for not joining a church, and maybe some of those are represented here. Sometimes you, you have these you know, perceived doctrinal differences. I mean, it may be real. If, you have, if, we, if we have disagreement on, on secondary matters, obviously the core essence of the gospel and who God is, and we've we got to agree on, but there are, we allow for disagreement on non-essentials. And so, if you talk with us, if that's maybe holding you back, maybe you maybe you just grew up here and you assumed you were a member because your parents are members. You're not members by birth, and so uh, we've talked about this with our small group of young adults, encouraging them to pursue membership here. So, uh, again, I I I would encourage you to do consider that if you've grown up here, even maybe you maybe you just haven't got around to it, and and you think what's what's the big deal? I hope that we've addressed that question. And this is important. 
Maybe you're sort of the conspiracy theorist that says, I just don't like anything. I'm not signing my name on anything. Attendance, roles, I don't want my name. So I'm trying to live off the grid. I, I don't know what to tell you. Um, but whether you've been attending for weeks or years, um, consider joining us there. We have applications, membership applications in the Connect Center in the foyer of Building B. And so pick one of those up. And then last, if you're already a member here and you're committed here, just prayerfully renew your commitment to the local church body. So use the, use the ch- church covenant that's, that's been provided you there. Just use this maybe this week as a prayer guide. Just look over these and, and confess where maybe you, 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 those areas you need to grow in and ask the Lord's help and, and just recommit uh, to one another uh, again because it, of the need that we have to cling to the promises of Christ together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this this church. I thank you for the members of this body. But most of all, I thank you for Christ. I thank you for what you've done to make us one. There is one body. And and we have one faith and one Lord who is over all and in all and through all. And and the, the reason we exist, the reason we can even talk about our commitments to one another is because of the... Uh, unilateral work that you have done, Christ, in coming and rescuing us. So thank you for breaking in and, and redeeming us, Lord, and making us into a body. And I pray, Father, though, that you would help us in those areas where we are deficient and really need to grow. And we are not perfect in any of these areas, but I pray that you would, you would grow us by the work of your Spirit in us. And I and I, and I pray that as we uh, grow in these areas, Father, that our confidence in Christ, that the gospel will continue to bear fruit and increase in us, Lord. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.